Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Good morning. For those of you, if maybe you're a little new here, my name is, is Barry Pat, and I serve as, as one, of the Rede- one of the elders here at Redeemer. And uh, kind of have the, the privilege today of filling in for Jeff, who's just getting back from, from some time with his family. He was actually uh, here in first service. It was just so encouraging to be able to kind of fill in for him and allow him just to, to be here with his, his, his daughter and his wife and, and just be worshipers. So uh, it's an honor to, to help him out in that way. So today we're going to be continuing in our, book, our study of the book of James. As you know, we've been, we've been doing this for, for several weeks now. And um, today we're going to be uh, in, the, in the chapter 5, we're entering the last chapter here, and we're going to be examining the verses 1 through 6 in a message that I've entitled, The Only Question in Life That Really Matters, What Do You Treasure? So uh, if you're looking for James, it's towards, here towards the back of the Bible, um, kind of right after Hebrews, a little bit before uh, Revelation. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles on the floor in front of you, you can simply just turn to page 1013. So as is our custom here, I would ask that you please stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word. James 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Pray with me. Father, it is uh, it's with, with deep humility that, that we consider this challenging passage today. Reminding ourselves that these are not the words of James, but the very words of God. God, may we see in this strong language, not a heart of anger, but a heart of a loving Father who wants to protect us from that which is harmful to both our bodies as well as our eternal souls. So God, would you open our eyes and hearts today to see how this passage applies to each of us here. And God, would you soften our hearts to to heed its warnings for our good and for your glory. And it's in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So, all right, so let's be honest, I... Some of you guys are probably already kind of nudging each other like, I told you we should have gone out of town this weekend, <laughs> right? I was, uh, a couple days ago, I was talking to, you know, Kevin, we were talking, kind of planning for the service a little bit, and, and, and he's like, so, what are you going to do, just yell at us for an hour? Or? <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> and I, I talked to my wife, Carolyn, 
um, when I first started studying this, and, and, uh, and she's like, do you want to know what she's preaching on? So I showed her the text, and, and she kind of got this panicked, wide-eyed look, and like, is that, is that really it? Like, <laughs> she realized I wasn't joking. She just kind of shrugged her shoulders like, well, good luck with that. So, <laughs> um, I mean, needless to say, this is a pretty intense passage, right? Um, you know, no one can ever say that we cherry-pick Scripture here at Redeemer. <laughs> it's there, it's in the book, and it's, 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 it's clearly for us. I mean, that's the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16, and we have to look at it in light of a text like today, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The glories of Romans 8 and the, and, and the, the difficulty of a James 5. And therefore, we know that this is not the rant of, a, of an angry apostle with an axe to grind, but rather it's a passionate plea from our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants us to free ourselves from the cheap trinkets of this world and to embrace the immeasurable riches of a life sold out and displaying the glory of God in every aspect of our lives. So, you know, as I began studying this passage, I couldn't help but, but think of the classic story by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Most of us are, surely we're not, I'm not too old to remember, we all remember that, right? This, of course, is the beloved Christmas story of the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, and he's, he's visited in his sleep by the, by the spirit of his deceased partner, Jacob Marley. And uh, Jacob hopes to spare his partner from his, his own less than desirable afterlife by having these, these three spirits representing the past, the present, and the future visit him in subsequent nights through, through visions. And of course, the, the most notable of these spirits was the ghost of Christmas yet to come, who leads Scrooge through this, this sequence of mysterious scenes relating to an unnamed man's recent death. And in this, Scrooge sees, sees businessmen discussing the dead man's riches. And he sees some vagabonds trading his personal effects for cash. And then the spirit takes him a little farther, and he, and he sees a poor couple expressing relief at the death of their unforgiving creditor. And of course, the story culminates when the spirit takes him to a cemetery and Scrooge realizes to his horror that the dead man is himself. And then fortunately, he, you know, he suddenly wakes up relieved that it, was, that it was all just a dream. And then, of course, his dead partner's goal is realized and as Scrooge has this radical change of heart and begins a new life marked by, by love and generosity. You know, so I wondered if like, I wonder if Dickens' inspiration for that timeless tale was not our text today. Because, you know, like the unsettling experiences of Ebenezer Scrooge, James intends to transport us to the future for a, for a kind of out-of-body look at ourselves to see the ugliness and the internal impact of a self-centered life. I mean, look at verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Like Dickens goes, James is, is calling us to follow him into the future, to look outside of ourselves, to view the coming horrors that await those who lead a life defined by greed and selfishness. 
I mean, the call to, to weep and howl, frankly, a little terrifying, right? And it certainly should gain our full undivided attention. So before we begin to examine the various vignettes of this passage, I want to first lay a contextual foundation so that we're not tempted to either tune it out as, as you know, not applicable to us or to feel a condemnation that's not intended. So first, let's remember the overall context of the book of James that we have we were studying in, in the weeks prior. And what, we, what we've learned that is the book of James is a call to practical Christianity, to living out your faith by being doers of the word and not hearers only. And this is what we saw in chapter 1. It's a call to avoid a worthless religion, as he called it, and instead to practice a faith that is pure and undefiled before God, marked by visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keeping oneself unstained from the world. And then, of course, last week we heard the immediate context of this passage today in Pastor Steve's sermon, where James warns of the brevity of life and about making assumptions about our future. So now start, James starts to wrap up this whole thing. He's trying to bring everything into closure. And, he, and, and he, he knows that our lives, as he says earlier in the book, that our lives are but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So James makes this, this passionate plea for us to make the most out of every breath that we are given, to not waste a single ounce of time or talent or wealth on the things that mean nothing in light of eternity. And then finally, before we jump into the, into the meat of the text, I want to take a moment to clarify a couple things about, about being rich. Because I think the first temptation that, that many here might have is to kind of breathe a, breathe a sigh of relief and like, whew, this doesn't apply to me. <laughs> There's one thing I'm not, it's rich, right? But I would tend to challenge that assumption for the vast majority of us here, it, if not for really all of us. I mean, you see, in our, in our insulated little bubble of American metropolitan suburbia, I think that probably most would consider needing a net worth of probably at least seven figures to be in the conversation of being rich. That's a millionaire for you Aggies out there. When, when you, uh, just, just trying to help, just trying to help. You know, when you pull back the lens and you look at the world as a whole, wealth looks significantly different. You know, I, I would attend to agree with a, with a 2011 online article that I read by a guy named Gary DeMar who says, if you have electricity, are able to purchase food at a grocery store, own a cell phone, go to the bathroom indoors and have a toilet to flush, have running hot and cold water, live in a place that has a refrigerator, own clothes that you did not weave or kill an animal to get, you are rich. And if you have a computer, air conditioning, central heating, an automobile, and live in a dwelling that's more than 500 square feet, you are super rich. So if you don't meet any of those qualifications, you are free to mentally check out. But for the rest of us, we may want to pay attention to this. 
And then, of course, the second temptation is the potential for those who, who God has blessed with great wealth, even by American standards, um, to become defensive at the thought that maybe that this passage seems to be a targeting all affluent people as evil and, and demanding the dissolution of all wealth, a sort of socialist manifesto. And I don't believe that this is the message that James is trying to convey based on, I think, a very clear precedent set throughout Scripture. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Job, Joseph, David, Solomon, they were all very wealthy and godly people throughout the Old Testament, and they gained their wealth specifically as a blessing from God. In the New Testament, we read about Dorcas and Cornelius and Lydia and Philemon, who are even more examples of affluent people who are also clearly portrayed as godly men and women. And therefore, I would conclude that the warnings in our text are not directed necessarily to question the sum of our wealth, but rather the value that we place on it and how we steward the wealth that we have been given. So, with that in mind, let's follow James into our first future vignette. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. So I guess you could say that, you know, really what, what James is doing is showing off his grasp of physics by giving a layman's version of, of what, you know, we learned in school is the second law of thermodynamics. You probably remember that, right? The total entropy of an isolated system always increases over time. Or in other words, everything rots and falls apart. In this first scene, James wants us to clearly see what becomes of all of the material things that we so deeply cherish in our lives. And for the loss, as, as we see this image, as, they, as you commence an eternity of, of anguish and separation from God, James wants them to see what they exchange the glories of heaven for. Rubbish. Every zillion-dollar house in River Oaks will eventually be reduced to rubble. The most expensive Lamborghini will end up in the same junkyard my, my little Toyota Yaris out there will. I mean, in Houston, we don't have to look any further than the Astrodome for a visual of this, right? What just 50 years ago was touted as the eighth wonder of the world is now a rat-infested eyesore that many would like to see torn down. And if you go to Rome, what you're going to see, and pay, you can pay to see the ruins of the Roman Empire, not the magnificent structures that existed 2,000 years ago. A couple of weeks ago, um, Jeff, in his sermon, made a, a memorable comment that for much of the book of James, that James was simply, and I quote, jazz scatting on the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I, I tell Kelly, I've, never, I've never heard an author of the Bible referred to as jazz scatting before, but um, I guess when your wife is from New Orleans, you say things like that. Um, <laughs> so uh, clearly, you know, our scat daddy James here is at it again when we consider Matthew 6, 19 through 21 where it says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the picture James is painting here. And with one glass, quick glance at, our, at, at this pile of rotting riches and moth-eaten clothes, James beckons us on to scene two. Verse three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Scene one was bad. Scene two is worse. Once again, James wants us to see clearly what becomes of even the most precious things on earth. But that's not the worst of it. He then adds that not only will your earthly treasure rot and corrode, but he says that it'll actually be used as evidence against you. It's like James escorts ourselves into this, into this future celestial courtroom where the person on trial is us. And we're on trial for high treason against the holy God. And, and we watch in horror as the prosecutor dumps this, this mountain of junk that once represented our treasure. And with great flair, he proclaims something similar to Romans 1.23, that claiming to be wise, he became a fool and exchanged the glories of the immortal God for all of this worthless stuff. That's the picture. And then he moves us out of the courtroom to get a glimpse of the punishment phase where the very memory of the things that brought us comfort and security as mortals now torments us. And as the verb is used, he eats our flesh like fire as an eternal reminders of our foolishness. Imagine that thought that, that you, all the stuff that you've treasured and thought about, for all of eternity, is nothing but a reminder of the things that, that, that are now tormenting you. That's why James begins the text with a call to, to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's passionately trying to open your eyes to the deception that we are falling victim to and to get our attention before it's too late. And of course, this is the same message Paul proclaims in Romans 2.5. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Guys, this is not just a, a hell and brimfire sermon. This is a passionate plea. He's, James is calling to us. And he has more for us to see. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The great horror of this scene is not just that the voices that we have cheated are crying out against us, but they have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. We don't just have a corroded pile of worthless treasure used as evidence against us. Exhibit two in this ghastly trial is that the very people that we harmed in our greed are now exhibits against us. 
And in this scene, we're forced to look into the eyes of the people that we were called to be a blessing to, but in our greed, we actually defrauded and cheated. And God noticed. He hears. He's the judge, and he's paying attention. James is affirming the Hebrews 10.31 that says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And quickly we move to the next scene. James is unrelenting in his descriptive vividness as we now stare at an even more disturbing and grotesque image of our sinful selves. In verse 5, he says, You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And here we get this, this visual image that's similar to, to cattle who casually graze, unaware that they are actually fattening themselves up for their own slaughter. The very thing that is a source of temporal satisfaction is actually hastening their own demise. It's not a very flattering picture to be compared with mindless cattle eagerly enabling their own untimely end. That's the picture he's painting. And this is a similar picture that Jesus painted in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12 that Steve referenced last week. Here we have God graciously blesses the crops of a farmer in the parable. He's got wealth more than he imagined, but instead of using his God-given wealth for the glory of God and the good of others, he foolishly chose to hoard his wealth for his own pleasure and comfort. And in verse 20 we read, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Mark 8.36 says the same similar thing. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? At this point, you know, you're kind of like, I remember, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, he's like, he's, he's, he gets to a point where he's begging to go, like, stop, I can't, I don't want to watch anymore, I can't see it. And, and we're kind of there now, we're like begging for this, this horrific field trip to stop. But James has one more scene for our viewing. In verse 6, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And this last image is, is maybe the most graphic and, and should be the most disturbing. Here, the selfish glutton is compared to a ruthless killer who callously destroys innocent and harmless people who get in his way. Now, I don't know if, if James is referring to, to literal or metaphorical murder, but the picture is that of a callous regard for anyone who stands in your way as you do whatever it takes to murderously scratch and claw your way to what you perceive as the top. And doesn't that describe our world? 
everybody clamoring for, for more stuff. And to, at, at whatever expense, whoever you have to step on or, or use or abuse, you do it because ultimately you count. And here James says, I want you to stare into the faces of all the people that you hurt verbally, that you hurt emotionally, you've hurt financially, and even physically in your murderous pursuit of selfish gain. Weep and howl for the miseries that you have inflicted on others and are now being inflicted on you a million times over. What do, what do we do with this? There's, this is, they're like, and now it's, it, ends, it starts harsh, it ends harsh. So what do we do? Do we, do we breathe a sigh of relief like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who said, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or do we respond like the tax collector a few verses later who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. James' call to weep and howl is a call to repent. And I, and I am quite confident that none of us here is completely innocent of the charges detailed in our text. I, I know I'm not. I mean, I, guys, I've been, I've been meditating on this passage now for close to a month. And I can tell you, it has been one of the most humbling and convicting of any sermon prep that I've ever had. It's made me seriously take, re-audit a lot of areas of my life. And so with that in, in mind, I want to use the rest of our time together to examine and audit our hearts in light of this passage. And I want to walk us through this by holding our text today against the what I would say is the scriptural antithesis of what James has just described. And this, of course, leads us back once again to the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's account, in chapter 12, he says, Fear not, little flock. This is verse 32. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Notice the direct contrast to James' warnings to the rich. James begins by calling his readers to weep and howl. Jesus opens with the words, Fear not. James warns that, that hoarding material wealth leads to decay and sin and judgment, and Jesus calls us to store up treasure in heaven that doesn't corrode or decay. It can't be stolen. In contrast, it does not grow old and will never fail. So if Luke 12 is the remedy to avoiding the horrors of our text today, then the million-dollar question is, is what is the treasure that Jesus is referring to? 
How exactly are we to, to store up treasure in heaven? What does that look like? Good question, right? I believe the answer to that question is twofold. The greatest treasure of all, of course, is Christ himself. Guys, there are, there are many glorious things in heaven that Scripture tells us about. But the most brilliant jewels and the most magnificent angels pale in comparison to being in the presence of Jesus himself. Jesus is the hidden treasure in the field and the pearl of great value from the parables in Matthew 13. And in both those parables in Matthew 13, what is it that the finders of these things immediately do? They go back and they sell all that they have to acquire the treasure. This is the message of Jesus to the rich young ruler, rich, rich, easy for me to say, rich young ruler in Matthew 19, who inquired, what, what do I do for eternal life? And Jesus knew his heart, and he knew his treasure. So he called on the young man to, he said, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And of course, the young man proved to be like the, like, like the rich in our text today, who he treasured his earthly possessions more than Christ. This young man, he thought he could have both treasure on earth and in heaven, and Jesus made it very clear that that dog don't hunt. Like James told us earlier in chapter 4, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or as Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot, you cannot serve God in money. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will love the one and hate the other. Compare, compare the heart of the rich, wrong, rich young ruler to that of Paul in Philippians 3. Here Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." You see, we're all going to acknowledge that the stuff of earth is rubbish. We can either do it like Paul in our lives, or we can do it like James tells us, after our lives. And we also learned that this, this is how you store up treasure in heaven. You eagerly jettison anything and everything else as meaningless trinkets so that you can gain the treasure of all heavenly treasures. Guys, this is not going to be popular to say, but let me tell you, make no mistake, heaven has no room for moral people who do good things in hopes of avoiding hell 
or just to be reunited with those they loved on earth. Heaven will only be inhabited by those who can't wait to fall on their face in unbound joy and adoration at finally being in the presence of their heart's desire, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our treasure. And I think there's only one other heavenly treasure that Scripture would say that we can store up here on earth. And that's other followers of Christ. Disciples are, in fact, the only thing on earth that we actually can take with us to heaven. And that's why the very last words of Jesus on earth recorded in Matthew 28, 19 is, of course, the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I think it's important to state here that treasuring Christ and making disciples are not independent pursuits, but they're as inseparable as two sides of the same coin. You see, you can't share treasure that you don't have, and you can't help but make much of what you treasure most. They go together. This is the Christian life, guys. God in, God out. Just as we breathe in oxygen to sustain our life and we exhale carbon dioxide to sustain our life, when God is truly the supreme treasure of our lives, we can't help but want to encourage others to make him their supreme treasure as well. And if you bring it in and you don't breathe it out, what becomes of carbon dioxide? It becomes poison. The very thing that gave you life now turns to destroy you if you don't exhale it. We need to be like the disciples who exalted in, in Acts 4.20, where, where after being beaten for sharing their faith, they said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than God, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Can't help it. When God truly captivates your heart, you can't help but talk about it. And, and the Apostle John makes it clear in 1 John 4 that if you don't love God, you can't love people. He says you're a liar if you say you do. But if you do love God, you can't help but love people. And to really love people, you've got to do more than just meet a physical need or help someone feel better about themselves. Those are good things. Social justice is good. And there are things that we should do, but they're a means to an end. And the end is to care about their souls. You see, sending people to hell with, with full bellies and clean clothes and suitable housing and self-esteem is not really loving them. The world is filled with many great secular humanitarian organizations. But what our world needs is more humanitarian disciple-makers. Jesus met all kinds of physical needs, but it was always as a means to make them receptive to hearing him tell them about he, how he could meet their spiritual needs. 
And that's the model for us as well. If we really want to store up treasure in heaven, then we must be about the business of investing in what will actually be in heaven. And that is people who already are or may soon become redeemed children of God. So how do you do that? Here's one idea. Before you go to bed each night, ask yourself, was there a non-believer with whom I shared my faith today? Was there a new or immature believer that I helped grow in their faith today? Was there a struggling believer that I encouraged or instructed in their faith today? Was there a mature believer that I challenged in their faith today? If you can answer at least one of these questions affirmatively, you've had a good day. And you can drift to sleep knowing that you have indeed made an investment in heavenly treasure. Oh, that we would be a people that if, if someone were to come up and, and ask how your portfolio was doing, instead of talking about your stock market, you start sharing with them this ministry in, in Africa that is turning this country upside down with the gospel. And you are able to be a part of it. You share with them your church and, and the impact and the investment that you make in, in, in all of your ways and the impact that, that it's having in this community and around the world. You share with them the, the, the Tomball Pregnancy Center that you are part of and investing in and the impact that it's saving children and babies every multiple times a year. You name it. There's a zillion of them out there. There's many ways. That's your portfolio. Who cares about the rest of it? It goes up. It goes down. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. That's not our value. And, and, and you may think to yourself, you know, I, I get it, but, you know, I'm not a pastor. I, I'm not qualified to do that kind of stuff. Like I tell you, you know, we're, we're about to begin a, an emphasis this fall on family discipleship. And I will start by saying that especially for those of us here who are parents, your first and foremost disciple-making responsibility is to your children and your family. And you are uniquely qualified to be that. That's what you're going to be hearing about in the weeks to come. And second, let's be clear that the, the Great Commission to make disciples was not in any way directed at vocational ministers, but to everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 is not written to vocational minister, but all believers, where it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I mean, this is, a, this is the picture we see of the blind man in, in John 9 where Jesus, where Jesus heals him and then the Pharisees are angered by it. They start challenging the blind guy saying, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And the blind guy says in, in, in verse 25, he answered, 
Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's all the theological training you need. Guys, you, you can do Bible studies till the cows come home. But if you never share your story of how you were blind, but now you see, then you need to reread James 1 in his discourse on worthless religion. That's how we make disciples. We share with as many people as possible the reason for the hope that is in us, our story. If you're a follower of Christ, this is your life's work. This is what matters. Your job may provide for yourself and your family, but making disciples and making much of Jesus is exactly what you were created for. Makes a good church mission statement, too. Okay, so what does that actually look like? Even bring it, let's boil it down in, in real life. And I think God has given us each three primary resources in varying degrees in which we can store up treasure in heaven by making much of Jesus and making disciples. And they are time, talent, and finances. Time, of course, is the great equalizer because each of us is given the same amount each day. No more, no less. The only variable is how we use it. And I think I would argue that the gift of time is probably the most meaningful and effective disciple-making tool of all. And if time is the greatest tool, then I would submit that time spent in prayer is our best investment. Guys, don't underestimate the internal impact of time and prayer. I can tell you, the older I get, the more convinced I am that time spent in prayer with others and for others is the single greatest, I repeat, the single greatest use of our time. The good news, it requires no special talents and it doesn't cost a penny. Just a sincere love for people and a belief that God hears and answers our prayer and is our best resource. In addition to time spent in prayer, giving our time to people can be of huge eternal value. This can look like having coffee with someone who is struggling or discouraged or just calling them or sending them a card or an email or a text. Spending intentional time building relationships with unbelieving friends or acquaintances with the desire to share your story. Engage in social justice activities, but do it as a means to share your faith. Have regularly scheduled meetings with people at any step of the faith process to talk, answer questions, read, pray. Whether it's your lost neighbor or ones that I, I think of uh, over the last several weeks, uh, Skip Richter and I have started to meet together on a pretty regular basis. And I love the time that Skip challenges me in my faith. He dares me to, to, to strive harder in pursuing Christ. 
And I hope I do the same for him. He's building treasure. How about being a faithful and consistent and active member of your missional community? Guys, this is where life change happens. We, this is not just a, uh, I, I, maybe I'll go. We're counting on each other. We have a very real enemy who, is, who is, desires to destroy us. We've got to watch each, other, other, each other's backs. Your time each week is not something you're like, well, maybe I'll go. No. Be there consistently. Sundays are a great opportunity to build eternal treasure by teaching, by serving, by praying, by encouraging people. And it's not just us pastors who need to be doing that. If you treat Sunday mornings like a, like a self-serve gas pump where you come in a little late so you don't have to talk to anybody, fill up your spiritual tank and then dart off as quickly as possible, you are missing an awesome opportunity to do something of eternal value. I love Sunday mornings. There's just opportunities everywhere to share, to pray, to encourage. And it's for you too. Secondly, God has given each of us unique gifts and talents to use to glorify God and to help others. We can use our talents to build a personal empire that will rot and vanish, as our text clearly illustrates today, or who can use it of great kingdom value. Whether your gifts and talents are artistic in nature or administrative or constructive or athletic or something else, they can and should be used for eternal purposes. This is certainly the message of 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God gave you your gifts to edify and to build up and encourage believers and unbelievers. Use it for that not for building a personal empire. And then the third resource, of course, that we've been given is finances. You know, it, it, we as elders are so, have been so encouraged that this is a remarkably generous church. I love that we rarely ever see red numbers in our financial reports. And yet, you know, I suspect that, that we're not even scratching the surface of the eternal impact that we could make individually and corporately if we really took on, as John Piper likes to call it, a wartime mentality, determined to leverage as, as much of our resources as possible on eternal things. Back once again to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the great plea of Jesus. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
And all of these things will be added to you. If we really took this passage to heart and sold out to commit as much of our resources of time, of talent, and finances to building the kingdom of God, and we trusted him to provide for our basic needs, imagine how many more missionaries we could support. How many more people we could disciple? How many more local ministries we could fund? How many more ministries that we could provide through our church family to serve the practical and spiritual needs of our community? If we really caught a vision as a church family of building a new facility in our community, not as a palace to serve our our selfish desire for comfort or prestige, but to be more like a, like a command post to provide help and hope and healing for the physical and spiritual needs of our community. Guys, I suspect that we have the financial means right now to make that happen. And we probably could do it without incurring debt. I know... This is a lot to take in. And it, 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 you may be thinking that this is, it seems radical. I mean, does God, does God really want me to turn my back on everything I own and treasure in life? I can only answer you with Jesus' own word in Luke 14, where he said, any one of you who does not renounce All that he has cannot be my disciple. That's his words, not mine. Now again, this is not a call to own nothing, but a call to treasure nothing but Christ alone. Is that radical? Not really. You want to hear radical? Consider what Scripture says about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, if you confess him with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That, my friends, is radical.
if the God of the universe can walk away from all of the glory of heaven, endure the torture and death of a Roman cross to pay the penalty for my sin and yours so that we can have the hope of spending eternity with him in paradise, then surely it is no sacrifice to count all the treasure of this world as rubbish. And that by any means necessary, we might gain Christ. So as the musicians and the communion attendants take their place and we enter a time of worship through communion, I, I pose to each of us again what I, what I really believe at the end of the day is the only question in your life that really matters. What do you treasure? To those of you here who are not yet followers of, my, of Christ, with all my heart, I plead with you to consider the passionate plea found in our text today. Assume for just a moment that the, that the claims of the Scripture, today's Scripture in particular, are actually true. And you may acknowledge to yourself that, that your possessions and your position, or your position really is your treasure. You love the world. You are living on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And like a cow in the pasture, you are fattening your hearts in a day of slaughter. The communion we're about to take really has no meaning for you, and, and there's no expectation for you to participate. Oh, but I would pray right now that God would grant you the gift of faith to see that all you now treasure will be turned to dust and the truth of your foolish will literally torment you throughout eternity. Make no mistake, today's passage is meant to strike fear in your heart, to weep for your hopeless state, and to open your eyes to the reality of the amazing news of the gospel that I just proclaimed. Today, you can trade your treasure of rust and dust for the unfathomable treasure of heaven, and a front row to the greatest treasure of all, eternity in the presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to hear more about how God can deliver you from darkness to light, our pastors will be up, will be up here after the service, and we would be honored to talk with you and pray with you. And for the believers here, may this communion today remind you again of the great hope and the treasure that we have in Christ because of his sacrifice on our behalf. It is our only treasure. And never forget the unfathomable truth that we, that we were the joy set before him that led him to endure the cross in our place. How do you get your arms around that? And therefore, as we come to the communion table today, God, I pray it will be with heartfelt gratitude. And may we examine in our hearts, examine him for any competing earthly treasure. Is God really the greatest treasure in your life? Do you seek first the kingdom of God? And is that reflected in the way you invest your God-given resources of time and talent and finances? Oh, that we would, as Hebrews 2 said, let us lay aside every weight 
and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Pray with me.